0: Hello everyone, I want to say on record that the episode I'll be doing is about telling you all as the listeners about the dangers of crime. I never glorify crime. I never glorify any and all types of crimes. In fact, I strongly discourage all crimes. I strongly discourage any crime. So the story I'm telling you is names will be name-dropped because this is a problem affecting the entire world. I'm going to be talking about street crews. And the names that are name-dropped, this is not about saying names just to say them. This is not about trying to achieve any kind of street credibility because none of those things are important to me. What is important to me is I have a platform and I'm going to be speaking more about subjects like this. I've had to speak on sex and religion because there's so much to be said. But tomorrow I'll finish the episodes about those things. But I will use this episode today to talk about how bad the streets can be. So people can find solutions in these stories to help, to so we can all help to eradicate, you know, street culture rooted in criminality. So... If you live an upright life, you don't have to worry about anyone, quote-unquote, snitching on you, ratting on, ratting you out, dying me out. First of all, we have to end this prohibition on being honest about evil to the right people, the authorities... Because if we want to have clean streets and clean neighborhoods, I'm not saying squeaky clean. I'm talking about neighborhoods that have no cutthroat crimes happening and just crimes in general. We have to be honest to the authorities about what's happening so children, grandmothers can play at the same park together. So mothers and fathers and people who are non-binary, LGBTQ plus genderless whatever the gender and sexual diversity cases may be, and I say that honorably, can spend time with their loved ones and families and friends at neighborhood restaurants in peace. So without further ado... Allow me to begin. It says, This is the Washington Post. The Washington Post, Democracy Dies in Darkness. 23 are arrested in probe of alleged Southwest drug gang by Bill Miller, March 6, 1998. A law enforcement task force arrested 23 people yesterday in an investigation of the L Street crew, an alleged Southwest Washington, D.C. drug gang suspected of carrying out numerous shootings and killings in recent years. U.S. Attorney Wilma A. Lewis said 11 reputed leaders of the crew were charged in U.S. District Court with racketeering and drug conspiracy in a 70-count indictment. The other suspects were charged with lesser crimes. The L Street crew, Lewis said, built a thriving business beginning in 1990 by selling marijuana, crack cocaine, and PCP in the Greenleaf Gardens public housing complex in southwest Washington, D.C. The crew's members did not hesitate to open fire on rivals or people who failed to pay their drug debts, she said. Most of the drug sales took place in an area surrounding the 200 block of L Street Southwest that became an open air drug market, Lewis said. More than 170 law enforcement agents took part in a series of early morning arrests in the district, Washington, D.C., in Maryland, recovering a large amount of drugs $11,000 in cash, four firearms, and a stun gun, Lewis said. This sweep climaxed an 18 month investigation carried out by a task force of FBI agents and D.C. police officers who have targeted drug crews. Those arrested included Thomas, nicknamed Woozy Fields, 24 of the 1800 block of North Capitol Street Northwest, who was accused of leading the crew and supplying his partners with drugs for customers who frequented the housing complex. The group is accused of carrying out the June 1996 Slang of Eric Lorenzo Dean, 25, was clutching a bag of marijuana when he died, shot in the back of the head. Members also allegedly are responsible for the killing that same month of William Bernard Lethwich, 16, in an apparent drug dispute. The other slang victims named in the indictment are. Parachark, three gay sook eighteen, and Letitia Henry, twenty, who died in June in the bizarre incident at Eight Hundred Block of North Capitol Street. Authorities said that crew members fired on Sirigay Suk, Parakar, Sir Okay, sh- as she drove. I'm sorry. Authorities said that crew members fired on Sarah Sook as she drove a car in a drug deal that went awry and that Henry was a bystander who died when hit by the vehicle. We have indicted the individuals who we believe were the principals of the L Street crew, Lewis said. We have certainly put a significant dent into the crew and we hope for all intents and purposes it's out of business. Ten members of Southwest gang indicted on drug counts by Maria Elena Fern and Ez Bill Miller, September 23rd, 1998. Ten members of a Southwest Washington, D.C. street gang that authorities said has terrorized a housing complex for a decade with homicides, shootings, and armed kidnappings have been indicted for their alleged participation in a violent marijuana distribution conspiracy, U.S. Attorney Wilma A. Lewis said yesterday. The defendants, all males ages 22 to 35, were indicted on 87 counts of racketeering and narcotics-related charges, including allegations that gang members killed two people who were government witnesses against the group. The federal indictment was unsealed yesterday. The joint federal-local investigation focused on violence spawned by the marijuana sales at the Greenleaf Gardens housing complex in southwest Washington, D.C. The men charged yesterday were members of the K Street Crew, a neighborhood gang that waged feuds with rival drug gangs such as the L Street Crew, whose federal racketeering trial is scheduled for January 1999. At a news conference yesterday and standing beside a chart that listed the names of 31 victims of shootings, including 13 homicides attributed to the K Street crew, Lewis said this is a clear example of why marijuana use in dealing cannot, I repeat, cannot simply be viewed as a harmless activity or a victimless crime. Pause. Here's what I would say to her, and I would say it respectfully. Not most people who are marijuana sellers and smokers do not have addictive personalities. Therefore, marijuana is never a gateway drug for them to do hardcore drugs. In fact, most people who drink or sell marijuana, who drink and sell alcohol, most people drink and sell alcohol, are not people with addictive personalities. So everybody within marijuana and alcohol cannot all be viewed the same. Most people who, with dip, who have marijuana alcohol in their lives do not have addictive personalities. So I have to repeat that because they'll say alcohol is a gateway drug. For most people with alcohol, that's, that's a lie. Most people with weed, that's a lie. Nobody says, well, Dunkin' Donuts is a gateway drug for McDonald's. Or McDonald's is a gateway drug for eating at buffets all the time. Constantly stuffing yourself with soul food. Come on now. Most people who eat don't get addicted to food. We're not obesity shaming. We're not fat shaming. I'm a member of the body positivity movement. So I want to say that on record. But a lot of times people... Don't understand that a victimless crime is the wrong way to label people with alcohol or marijuana. It's a harmless activity for most people within the world of alcohol and weed. And most people who smoke weed are very sensitive to the type of weed they smoke because they don't want to smoke any weed that can cause them to have detrimental health effects. They smoke things that are harmless to their health. Smoke weed things. And so most people with when it comes to alcohol and marijuana have pure intentions and they do right by themselves and others those intentions. In fact, these same people are people who don't drink around certain people, don't smoke around certain people, they don't drink in certain environments, they don't smoke in certain environments. In fact, They get along well with people who don't drink and don't smoke. So they're usually decent neighbors, decent human beings. So they're wise with alcohol and weed, not foolish with it. It says, Prosecutors said the K Street crew carried out at least 13 killings from from 1989 to 1996, as well as numerous shootings, robberies, and other crimes. The victims are not limited to rival gang members or people who did not pay drug debts, according to the 77-page indictment. Crew members staked out the area surrounding the 200 block of K Street, Southwest DC, as their territory authority said. To protect themselves and their business, they carried semi-automatic weapons and often wore bulletproof vests, investigators said. Both the L Street and the K Street crews built a thriving business selling marijuana and other drugs at Greenleaf Gardens and do not hesitate to open fire on rivals, witnesses to crimes, and people who failed to pay their drug debts, prosecutor said. The marijuana trade at Greenleaf Gardens grew in the early 1990s, drawing customers from the suburbs and leading to violence, more often associated with crack cocaine sales. At the news conference, D.C. Police Chief Charles H. Ramsey expressed concern that another drug organization would take over the area. Organization like this gain strong footholds in communities, Ramsey said. It's easier to prevent another one from forming. Indeed, drug trafficking in the area continued to thrive after the 1992 arrest of Wayne Anthony Perry, who pleaded guilty to carrying out five killings and is serving a life prison sentence with no chance of parole. After Wayne Perry's imprisonment, the task force began a comprehensive investigation and identified the L Street and K Street crews as the primary drug dealers operating in the neighborhood, Lewis said. Besides breaking up the K Street operation, the task force seized 18 firearms, multi-kilograms of marijuana, and more than $70,000 in cash, said Bob Riley, assistant special agent in charge of the FBI field office in Washington, D.C. The 10 men charged in indictment are in custody, Lewis said. Many already were jailed, either awaiting trial or serving time on previous convictions. The alleged K Street ringleader, Vincent Hill, 35, beat competitors with bats or sticks when he wasn't armed with a gun, prosecutors said. The indictment accuses Hill of killing a founding member of the L Street crew in 1989. His brother, William Hill, 35, 34, was also indicted. One of the slain witnesses was identified as Philip Claiborne, 21, who was hit by a volley of gunfire in September 1994 as he left a restaurant in the 1200 block of South Capitol Street Southwest. The other was Krishana Gladden, 20 who was shot in November 1996 as she left a party in Southeast Washington, D.C. The indictment also links crew members to a triple slang that took place in November 1996 in Prince George's County, Maryland. Authorities said Melody Anderson, 22 Alonzo in 27 and Darnell Leonard Mack, 38, were shot to death during an attempted robbery in a townhouse in Hillcrest Heights. Charges also were filed against Samuel Carson, 28, Sean Coates, 26, Paul Franklin, 28, Jerome Martin, 27, Donald Nichols, 29, Maurice Proctor, 25, who were convicted of first-degree murder last year in the killing of Claiborne, William Kyle Sweeney, 22, and Reginald Darnell darnell switzer 29 the charges are a culmination of an investigation led by the safe streets task force made up of investigators from the dc police department the fbi and the u.s attorney's office caption chief charles h rams and u.s attorney william a lewis announced indictment describing a violent marijuana distribution conspiracy. i want to say again most people distribute alcohol and marijuana are not violent people they're love and peace people so this is also what i want to say about these articles this is what happens when broken families and dysfunctional homes are allowed to reign supreme in neighborhoods and communities this is what happens when people don't have enough jobs this is what happens when people lack positive role models in their lives This is what happens when we put money over people. This is what happens when we do not deal with the traumas of being black in America and all over the world. This is what happens when misogyny rears its ugly head. This is what happens when misandry is popularized. This is what happens. When we squander the gift of youthful youthfulness, this is what happens when we take life that we're living for granted and the lives of other people that live, they, that they're living, that they live for granted for their lives. This is what happens when we disregard integrity. And this is what happens when we have warped views of what it means to be human, to be male, to be female, to be human. In terms of what greatness is all about. This is what happens. When we lack self-control, when we lack self-discipline, we lack love, we lack joy, we lack peace, we lack patience, we lack kindness, we lack faithfulness, we lack gentleness, we lack self-love. we lack self when we lack love for others, when we lack compassion, we lack empathy, we lack sympathy, we lack grace, we lack mercy, we lack, you know, turning from our wicked ways, when we lack stopping being toxic people. And it's what happens when bitterness and malice control us. When unresolved issues and Unsolved problems and unhealed conflicts reign supreme. You get all these mayhems happening. This is what happens. ...when we bullshit... ...our lives away... ...this is what happens when we bullshit the lives of other peoples... away, this is what happens when we don't give a fuck... ...about our families... ...when we don't give a fuck about other people's families... ...we don't give a fuck about America... ...we don't give a fuck about our blackness... ...and we don't give a fuck... ...about... ...neighborhood... ...community... ...activism... ...neighborhood community... ...advocacy... ...this is all what happens'... Crime is never to be glorified. No crime is worthy of glorification. All crimes should be strongly discouraged and strongly disparaged. <laughs> Federal targeting of street crews in Washington DC made May 12, 2021, in Washington D.C. in the late 20th century, open air drug market open air drug markets proliferated, and homicides were at an all time high. This image from the Washington Post shows that there were open air drug markets and homicides all over the city, with the notable exception of Upper Northwest. In 1996, in an interview with Washingtonian magazine, prosecutor Mike Volkov explained his office was dedicated to rooting out the drug bosses. He described how the United States' Attorney's Office had successfully prosecuted several significant drug organizations and their leaders, Rayful Edmund and his multi-million dollar operation, Cornell Jones and his lucrative drug operation, Mark Hoyle and his violent Newton Street gang, Anthony Nugent and and the R Street organization, Anton White and the First Street crew, Calvin Sumler and the Fern Street Group, and recently the first in Kennedy Street Gang. Volkov explained, We built cases using the drug conspiracy laws and the racketeering or RICO statutes, which were originally passed in the Kennedy administration to target mafia organizations. Eight years ago, our office was the first to apply the RICO laws to violent drug gangs. The Rayful edmond case is notorious as is Rayful himself. At its peak in 1988, Rafael's organization had 200 employees and moved somewhere between $10 million, $20 million worth of crack a month. This organization allegedly controlled between 20% and 50% of the cocaine and crack markets in D.C. and were suspected of being involved in 30 homicides. Rafael the III was charged with nine major felonies. And received three life sentences for continuing a criminal enterprise and conspiring to violate federal narcotic laws along with other charges the continuing criminal enterprise office alone carries a mandatory minimum term of life imprisonment without parole rayful edmund remains behind bars today although in october 2019 edmund requested a sentence reduction based on his longstanding cooperation with federal prosecutors rayful edmund was was clearly a kingpin however there is much more doubt Around whether or not the six. Rayful Edmund was clearly a kingpin. However, there is much more doubt around whether or not the other six crews targeted by federal agents were major players in the drug industry. It is clear, nevertheless, that federal and local authorities in the District of Columbia worked together to target six organizations' massive complex raids. Each of these cases involved significant coordination and outlay of resources. Building a case based on conspiracy and racketeering charges took months of investigative work. In Washington, D.C. in the 1980s and 1990s, there were dozens of crews that sold crack cocaine, yet law enforcement chose to focus on this small set of crews. The crews that were targeted were concentrated in two areas of the city. One set of raids was in an area around North Capitol Street and conjoins the Bloomingdale and Eckington areas. The other set was farther uptown, including one in Mount Pleasant, one in Brightwood Park, and one in Shepherd Park. These areas share a few things in common. So I want to say on record that, um, that we live in a world that glorifies evil. pure evil and we make that masculine or what it means to be a woman because the crime world is heteronormative and the crime world is queer phobic. In some aspects of the crime world it is very possible that you can be killed for being LGBTQI plus non-binary and genderless. You can be beaten up for being LGBTQI plus genderless and non-binary. And these are things that are really destroying our communities. So, I have another article to read. It says DC police federal agents arrest 22 in drug sting in Shaw. Authorities say crews sold fentanyl and other drugs in northwest Washington, D.C. by Peter Herman, updated May 22, 2022. Uh, a nearly year long investigation focused on the district's Shaw neighborhood ended this week with more than 20 arrests and the seizures of cocaine, fentanyl, and 11 firearms, according to law enforcement authorities. Federal prosecutors said 13 of the people targeted in the northwest Washington, D.C. neighborhood between the age of 29 and 54 were indicted on drug conspiracy charges in U.S. District Court. Ten were arrested Wednesday. Two were in jail on other charges and one is being sought. Police said nine of the people were arrested during operations on Wednesday and Thursday, most on gun and drug charges. Six of the guns were taken off the streets on Wednesday. We're talking about violent offenders who no longer will be targeting this neighborhood with unnecessary and tragic violence, D.C. Police Inspector Lachey McCall, who heads the Violent Crime Suppression Division, said at a news conference on Thursday in Shaw. Authorities said the crew was centered at 7th and O streets northwest near the Kennedy Recreation Center, although they alleged drug sales and violence spread outward into Truxton Circle in LaDroite Park. Police said the investigation was dubbed Uptown Express. The authorities did not discuss specific instances, instances of violence. Court documents filed in U.S. District Court, D.C. on Thursday, also did not provide many details. Search warrants were served at more than 20 locations in D.C. and in Maryland. Crews based at 7th and O Streets have been around for years with beefs or feuds, if you will, stretching back to the deadly crack cocaine era in the late 1980s and early 1990s that made the district the nation's murder capital. Violence has eased over the years as the neighborhood gentrified, although shootings sometimes deadly have persisted. Wayne A. Jacobs, the special agent in charge of the criminal and cyber division of the FBI's Washington field office, said continued violence and fatal overdoses from fentanyl and other drugs put the suspected crew on law enforcement's radar. He said that members showed disregard for their community and for human life. With the arrest, Jacobs said, our city is a little bit safer today. Authorities said they do not believe the fentanyl allegedly sold by this crew is connected to overdoses from fentanyl batches that... Early this year, killed nine people in southwest Washington, D.C., and killed 10 people in northeast D.C. But police said they would test the drugs seized in Shaw and compare them with drugs and those other fatal incidents. Fentanyl is a particularly lethal synthetic opioid that is up to 50 times more powerful than heroin. Mayor Muriel E. Bowser, a Democrat, Joined authorities at the news conference and described residents of the area as rightfully frustrated and angry by the violence here. She said, "It is time for the rest of the justice system to ensure those who bring harm to our count to our communities be held accountable." This is what happens when social injustice, economic injustice, racial injustice, gender and sexual diversity injustice. That means injustice happening to gender and sexual diverse communities, and all around injustice occur to our communities. So, environmental injustice, cultural injustice, injustices that are a threat to equity and equality, human injustice, local injustice, national injustice, state injustice, national and. In- international injustice continental injustice country injustice city injustice local injustice all of these injustices are exactly why that these problems keep reigning supreme There's more. This is WAMU 88.5 American University Radio. DC residents caught amid cracks, is, cracks bloody turf wars, January 30, 2014. Ruben Castaneda landed a job as the overnight police reporter for the Washington Post in September 1989. He was a middle-class kid from Los Angeles, and no one, not his friends, not his new boss, not even his family knew he was a serious drug addict. I arrived on a Tuesday, and by Saturday, I found my way here to S Street and very quickly figured out this is a good place to buy crack cocaine, he says. It was right there at the corner of S and 7th Street Northwest, that Castaneda made his first buy i drove up on a sun i drove up on a sunny afternoon with somebody who agreed to buy crack cocaine for me her street name was champagne she said she knew where to go and i knew she was telling the truth Uh, a warping truth that's what happens in the world of crime and addiction and I was immediately struck by what was on the block. There were at least 10 drug dealers hanging out in front of abandoned bakery, he recalls. No one, he says, looked concerned about getting caught. The drug dealers here on S Street did not seem to care at all about anybody watching them. Whereas in Los Angeles, the drug markets where I made purchases were controlled by Central American gangsters. And they at least bothered to look over their shoulders to see if there were any LAPD black and whites nearby. WAMU eighty eight point five host Kocho Namadi moved to Shaw in the early nineteen seventies and says that by the mid eighties, gangs or crews as they were known formed on each block, including his own on eighth Street, Shaw, a neighborhood in Washington DC. He woke up one morning and then they, and then there they were. All these people that you'd never seen in your life before, very few of them actually lived in the neighborhood, he recalls. Kids who grew up together suddenly had guns, he said, and they were fighting in the street. we would be walking down the street and they'd say, stop, stop, stop fighting. Here comes Mr. Cocho. They would almost literally part. We would walk past them and say, hello, Mr. Cocho, how are you doing? We'd walk past and they'd start fighting again just as we got past. At the time, Commander Melvin Scott, who now runs the Metropolitan Police Department's Narcotics Unit, was a beat officer in Shaw. He remembers how the lucrative crack trade set dealers, many of them young, many of them neighborhood kids, against each other. You're talking about kids with a lot of money, no conflict resolution. Everybody's telling you you're the biggest, baddest man because you have a pocket full of money. as says longtime friends would kill each other over who knows what. The body count started. It just, it blew up. Neighbors respond. mod. Namdi that's that's her that's the name. Namdi and his neighbors in Shaw did all the things you think to do. Call the police, reach out to their member of the D C City Council, but none of it was working. Then in 1988, a young civic activist named Leroy Thorpe Jr. decided to take matters into his own hands by forming a neighborhood patrol. We'd go out in the daytime to get people off the block. Anytime we see them loitering there, we see them suspecting that they're using drugs. We want them out of here. I was telling him, I'd go get a bat, bust them upside the head. We were going to blow their house up. I was raw. Wasn't even thinking of the legalities of whatever the situation may be, he says. Thorpe organized more than 100 anti-drug rallies and keeps a handwritten spreadsheet of each of the dozens of crack houses he helped raid. The people inside that are actually, they have a connection to the house, are they selling drugs? Turn info information over to the vice unit. Vice unit goes in there, boom, they bust them, he remembers. Shaw's Red Hat Patrol inspired similar groupings all over the city, although Thorpe admits that dealers and people who are called addicts, I prefer to say people who are addicted to drugs, pushed out of one neighborhood, often moved a few blocks over, didn't truly solve the problem, but it solved his problem for the time being. By the early 1990s, the number of murders in Washington, D.C. was at an all-time high. Washington Post reporter Ruben Castaneda recalls that some nights he would be out covering one crime scene when another shooting would come through over the police scanner. The most dramatic example occurred in early 1990. February, a call came over the scanner for a shooting at the corner of 7th and S. right away. I thought, oh, I know that block. It turned out that it was a quadruple murder that had started inside the nightclub. Six men had been shot. And it was my first front page story for the paper. It happened almost at the time block. I'm sorry. It happened almost at the same block, almost the same location where I was making my drug buys. He says these twin sons were teenagers during this era, and keeping them away from the neighborhood's violence was a source of near-constant anxiety. Another young man, maybe he was a teenager just a couple of years older than my son's Pookie, who was talking to my sons outside the house one day. Pookie seemed to have been making a decent living doing a number of illegal things. That means he Pookie's making an indecent living. Illegality is a major form of indecency. So it's not a decent living, it's an indecent living. And I said, who is Pookie talking to you about? And they said he was telling us how, you know, things are going to look pretty good for us. And he said, you know, by the time y'all are my age, y'all probably be ready to go to college. And by then I'll probably be dead. I said, is that what he said? And they said, yes. And he was right, he recalls. The homicide rate ticked higher and higher. From 194 in 1986 to 434 in 1989 and 482 in 1991, there were shootings in broad daylight at swimming pools, schoolyards, and funeral homes. D.C.'s murder rate far exceeded that of other cities, and the city gained an infamous title the nation's murder capital. We had cases where guys would shoot somebody. Ambulance would come pick them up. They'd follow the ambulance, and and if the guy was still alive, they'd run up on the ambulance and start shooting the guy on the stretcher. Remember, it's Lou Henderson, who ran the Metropolitan Police Department's homicide unit from 1993 to 1995. The shootings were mainly in the eastern half of the city, which was predominantly African-American and poor. Because the violence was so concentrated, Hennessy changed the structure of the unit. Lou Hennessy, he let cops stay in one neighborhood and develop sources rather than chasing whatever case came up next. He also invited detectives from all neighboring counties to his weekly meetings. 10 o'clock in the morning, every Wednesday, and we would talk about who our suspects were, who was killed, what type of weapon was used. I can remember telling Chief Thomas, that's my goal. We're gonna get it under 400. And he was joking with me saying, if you get it under 400 in this city, you'll win the Nobel Peace Prize, he says. It wasn't the crack, but it was the violence associated with the crack that became so obvious. I'm really disturbed by the humor of that person because there's nothing humorous about this story. It wasn't an unusual weekend. I'm sorry, it wasn't unusual weekend to have ten murders over a weekend. I repeat, it wasn't an unusual weekend to have ten murders happen over a weekend and this is not a big city. People compare it to Chicago and New York. At 12 of the weekend, New York is 16 times as big as D.C. It was unbelievable, he remembers. The thing that really irked you about it is we had this terrible problem. But as long as it was poor, young black people being killed, nobody really cared. But within individual neighborhoods, people did care and local churches began to intervene. Racism and poverty, unfortunately, have a relationship. So you have structural discrimination, institutional discrimination. You have politicians not doing enough about these issues. And the politicians that are doing more than enough about these issues... They're pushing to the back burner. And so you have... Nonchalance, indifference... Heart, be, people being heartless... People lacking... Um, care and concern and compassion. Uh, you have people... Being misguided and misled to doing wrong shit. You have fuckery being everywhere, unfortunately. You have systematic and systemic oppressions. And the militarism culture is destroying our communities. You have absent parents, deadbeat parents. You have neglectful uninvolved adults. And you have torture, torment, and turmoil being exacerbated and excused. There's more. Four gang members found guilty of taking part in conspiracy that led to murder, shootings, and other violence. One murder took place outside a funeral in northwest Washington, D.C., Washington. Four members of a criminal street gang based at 14th and Garage Streets in northwest Washington, D.C. have been found guilty by a jury of murder and other charges stemming from a conspiracy to assault, kill and threaten their rivals and obstruct justice. The guilty verdicts were announced today by U.S. Attorney Ronald C. Matchin Jr., Kathy L. Lanier, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department, and Robert D. McLean, Acting Chief of the U.S. Park Police. The defendants, all from Washington, D.C., these are now 2014 articles, okay? The descendants, all from Washington, D.C., include Robert Gibbons, 21, Kerr Johnson, 24, Lester Williams, 26, and Marcellus Jackson, 25. The guilty verdicts followed nearly four months of trial in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. Givens Johnson and Williams were found guilty on March 21, 2014 of murder and other offenses. Jackson was found guilty on the same date of conspiracy-related offenses. The jury then continued deliberations of other charges against Jackson, finding him guilty on March 24, 2014 of assault with a dangerous weapon and related charges. Today, the jury found him guilty of a second-degree murder charge. The Honorable Lynn leigh Lebovitz scheduled sentencing for June 13, 2014. The descendants who have been in custody since their arrest face faces decades in prison. The 14th and Garad gang, also known as G Rod, 1 4 and the Cut Crew, was sent in the areas of 14th and Garad and 14th and Fairmont Streets Northwest. I think it's Girad. Okay. The group was engaged in a long-standing conflict with rival crews, especially ones that were based in the areas of 17th and Euclid Streets Northwest, and the 600 block of Morton Street Northwest. The gang's victims included Sean Robinson, 18, who was killed in the parking lot of a school in August 2010, and Jamal Coates, 22, and Jamal Coates, 21, who was killed following a funeral in September 2010. During a, fourth month, during a four-month trial, this, this jury learned about the outrageous gang violence that culminated with the brazen. Daylight murder of 21-year-old Jamal Coates at a busy U Street intersection at U.S. Attorney Matching. That murder came just a month after this gang killed a teenager in a school parking lot. These guilty verdicts send a clear message about our community's refusal to tolerate gang violence in the District, D.C., Washington, D.C. We hold accountable the crew members who who try to spread chaos and fear throughout our neighborhoods. These verdicts are a reminder to our community that every sector and department of the criminal justice system will make every effort and exhaust his resources to ensure that our streets are safer by eradicating violent street gangs, said Police Chief Lanier. Lanier. Violence will not be tolerated regardless of the intended recipient. I applaud all the hard work and collaboration of every agency involved in making today's verdicts possible. Gibbons was found guilty of second-degree murder while armed in the slang of Mr. Robert Robinson, as well as a charge of assault with a dangerous weapon involving a second victim shot at the scene. He also was found guilty of conspiracy firearms offenses and charges that he committed the crimes for the benefit of a criminal street gang. Johnson and Williams were each found guilty of first-degree murder while armed in the killing of Mr. Coates. They also were found guilty of assault with intent to kill in the shooting of another individual in, in that attack as well as assault, the dangerous weapon for firing upon a third person that day. Johnson and Williams also were found guilty of conspiracy, firearms, offenses, and charges that they committed the crimes for the benefit of a criminal street gang. Finally, Johnson also was found guilty of a charge of assault with intent to kill while armed Stemming from a separate attack in June 2010 in which a man was wounded. In addition to conspiracy, Jackson was also found guilty of second-degree murder in the slang of Mr. Coates. Assault with a dangerous weapon involving an attack against one of the individuals with Mr. Coates and charges that he committed the offenses for the benefit of a criminal street gang. According to the government's evidence, the shootings resulted from a long-standing conflict with rival crews. The government presented evidence of these and other crimes. June 27, 2010, Johnson Chase shot and attempted to kill a rival crew member in the parking lot of a gas station 300 in the 34 in the 3400 block of Georgia Avenue Northwest. August 11, 2010, Gibbs and others committed the murder of Mr. Robertson, who lived in the area 17 17th Euclid Street, as well as the shooting of two 14-year-olds who were with him while they stood together in the parking lot of a school in the 2 in the 2 in the 2600 block of Mozart Street Northwest. September 28, 2010, Johnson and Williams committed the murder of Mr. Coates, a rival crew member, near 13th and U Streets Northwest, during the funeral procession for a young female with family ties to the rival crew. In addition to shooting Mr. Coates, Williams and Johnson shot a second person in the attack and fired upon a third individual. Jackson provided assistance to Johnson and Williams. After the funeral shooting, the defendants took many steps to attempt to obstruct justice and avoid prosecution, such as trying to find and locate witnesses, and in the case of Two of, the, two of the defendants fleeing to North Carolina. The men were indicted in December 2011 following an investigation by the Metropolitan Police Department, the U.S. Park Police, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. Two other members of the crew earlier pled guilty to charges stemming from their violent conduct. In announcing the verdict, U.S. Attorney Matching M. Oh, wow. Basically, all the people that are. Associated with the criminal justice system By and large Are the ones who worked hard And they're the ones who Are keeping our neighborhood safe As best they can There's so many of them That pretty much every leader Task force and departments Within the criminal justice system Are doing their jobs To the best of their ability in this case Because it was a lot It was justicegov.com and whoo. Okay. So I'm going to make this part one because this story is just littered, and I mean littered with immoralities. I have to say this. I was thinking that's why I was quiet for a minute. I have to say this. Within our communities... People are being deserted. People feel desolate, destitute, desperate, empty, unused, vacated, left, neglected, relinquished, lonely, forsaken, solitary, hopeless, cast-all cast aside cast away forgotten shunned forlorn avoided outcast rejected helpless unfortunate alone discarded scorned lost doomed friendless wretched thrown overboard out on a limb waiting at the waiting at the church left in the lurch in the cold left holding the bag because sadly they have been abandoned